So recently there was an article that I read in the National Geographic magazine. And the title of it is called Why We Lie. Love this. The science behind our deceptive ways. The science behind it, right? It's a very interesting title. And within this, the author writes this, or the, the person writes this. Lying, it turns out, is something that most of us are very adept to or adept at. We lie with ease in ways big and small to strangers, co-workers, friends, and loved ones. Our capacity for dishonesty is as fundamental to us as our need to trust others, which, ironically, makes us terrible at detecting lies. Listen to this. Being deceitful is woven into our very fabric, so much so that it would be truthful to say that, it is, that to lie is human. Again, keep in mind, this is an unbeliever saying this. He goes on. That human beings should universally possess a talent for deceiving one another shouldn't surprise us. Researchers speculate that lying as a behavior arose not long after the emergence of language. The ability to manipulate others without using physical force likely conferred an advantage in the competition for resources and mates akin to the evolution of deceptive strategies in the animal kingdom, such as camouflage. In other words, lying is as natural to the human as camouflage is to animals. And then he quotes somebody else saying, lying is so easy compared to other ways of gaining power, notes Cicela Bach, an ethicist at Harvard University who's one of the most prominent thinkers on the subject. It's much, easy, it's much easier to lie in order to get somebody's money or wealth than to hit them over the head or rob a bank. This is a fascinating statement, right? The fact that an unbeliever, a professing unbeliever would say these things, that it is in our human fabric, it is natural for us to lie, to be deceitful. Being deceitful is woven into our very fabric. And of course, we agree with this, but we see this very differently, right? We see that this is because of sin. We see the result of this is sin, not evolution like they believe. But nevertheless, this is so true. And so thinking about what we say and how we say it, who we say it to, why we say it, is so important. We need to understand the words that come out of our mouth are fundamental, are extremely important, what we do say, what we don't say. And as I was studying through this passage that we're going to go through this morning, I was just kind of thinking about different uh, times in history where people said important things, and I was just thinking about some of the most famous speeches, right? The Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln. I have a dream, Martin Luther. Think about what that did and how fundamental that was and the changes that came from that, right? The remarks at the Brandenburg Gate with Ronald Reagan. The speech given by JFK where he announced that we're going to the moon. Think about the impact that that had and how much that changed. But what about biblically speaking here? Well, some of the more famous quote-unquote speeches or lessons, right? The uh, Sermon on the Mount, how fundamental that was and how much that changed. All of these have one thing in common in that they all had world-changing implications, and the words in these speeches express the significance of the events themselves, right? Think about it. If you've heard any of these, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, again, the, 
the one out of these that just really continues to ring in my head is I Have a Dream by Martin Luther. And just how different it was and how much he was expressing in the words that he was saying. And what was the response? Some people agreed with it. Some people thought, wow, this is great. We agree with you. And yet it, in others, it, re, it uh, caused a response of anger, frustration. His words had an impact. Words are important and powerful. Just for some more examples, think about this. When we talk about creation, God created the earth through his word, right? By his word, he breathed out the creation. And if you see in scripture, it's clear that he will destroy the world in the same way. Adam is told to name the animals. I think that's significant. Don't overlook that. He gives them a form of, ident of identification. God says, name the animals. So with his words, he names them. He also names woman, right? Uses words to call out woman so he can identify her. What about the first sin? What was the first sin? Questioning God. What did he say? Did God really say that? Slander. And not only did Satan slander, but then Adam and Eve slandered, right? God, what, is, what does Adam say to God after God confronts him? What does he say? You gave me this woman. This is your fault, God. So slander. The words of Adam's mouth, sin. Eve blamed Satan, right? It wasn't my fault. I was deceived. Cain lies to God about the whereabouts of his brother. Where is your brother? I don't know. Noah curses him, son Canaan. We can look at the Tower of Babel, right? Where God confuses the languages. What was the reason for him confusing the languages? Why did God confuse the languages in the, uh, the account of the Tower of Babel? Why did he do that? To do what? Break up unity. It was a direct result of their pride. They said, we can do whatever we want. We're going to erect this monument as high as the sky. And God saw that they were becoming proud. That's why he says, anything that man sets their heart to do, they will do it. And so as a result of that, God says, I'm going to disperse you. I'm going to confuse your languages. It's a direct result of pride. Later on, we see that the Spirit reunites the languages, right? Illustrating the new covenant when everybody could hear the same thing out of one speaker, all the different languages. We see blessings through Adam's lineage. We see Moses declare God's commands over and over. We see Joshua continue to uh, declare these commands. Jesus taught the disciples, right, over and over. We see that throughout Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Olives. He taught his disciples. By his words, Jesus cast out demons, right? And so on and so on. We could spend forever looking at the different illustrations of how words have impacted history and what has been said has impacted history. And think about the different ways that our mouths impact things or do things. With our mouths, we can praise and curse, right? We can build up and tear down. We can make a promise and we can break a promise. We can show love and we can show hate. We can bless and we can curse. With our tongues, we encourage, we exhort, we remind, we teach. We can tell stories, both good and bad stories. 
We can bring good news. How is it that we're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with our words, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We can proclaim. I'm standing here proclaiming what the truth of God's word says to you at this very moment. We'll hear it later on when Joel preaches. We can swear. And I don't mean like say a swear word, but we can say, I swear that this is going to happen. We pray. We sing. We can start rumors and we can start wars with our words. We can divide. We can topple governments. Promote agendas. Create movements. Kill from close range or kill from long range. Just by saying something here, somebody can be impacted across the world from what I have to say. We can slander. We can malign. We can manipulate. We can gossip. We can deny, right? Peter denied. We can entice. We can lure. And etc., etc., etc. You get the point, right? We can do just about anything that we want with just the simple words that come out of our mouths. And think about this. How does this affect us today? Well, what are we impacted by on a daily basis? Media, social media, all over the place. TV, computers, our phones that we carry on us all the time. Think about all the different apps, right? All these crazy apps that you can do. Boomerang, you can do uh, all these crazy different things where you can immediately say something and it's out there. And people can see it and can hear it and be impacted by it. Thoughts and ideas are flooding, and I think that's an understatement, are flooding our culture with a seemingly endless ability to hear and see what others have to say about any situation almost immediately, right? The ability to hear or see or say something that you have to say is almost instantaneous. And once it's out there, it's out there. Think about all the different examples of somebody saying something, a celebrity or a professional athlete or our president, whoever, saying something and then having to come back and take back what they said or that's not quite what I meant, but we know that what they said is what they said and they said it for a reason. Can't take it back. Think about the news outlets promoting agendas constantly. We're bombarded with billboards and TVs and radio ads for people saying things in order to get a response from it, promoting what they have to say. And in their time, it was mostly oratory, right? In, in the scriptures that we're talking about, it was mostly oratory, not a whole lot of writing. But I would say in our era, it's even more impactful because now we can see books, magazines, blogs, and any other form of writing. Any thought or belief can be articulated in writing and sold for a price or given away for free. In the Lord's providence, I, I love it. I've been preparing for this all week, and uh, as I'm preparing through this, I'm thinking through this all week, and I'm starting to see things and recognize things. And last night I was at Target, and I happened to be going through the book section. I'm a seminary student. Of course I go through the book section. And there's a book that totally catches my eye, and I still can't believe that I saw it, but the name of the book, this is a child's book, keep in mind, is called Feminist Baby. And on the back of it, the little, the little one-line quip says this, meet the irrepressible feminist baby, exclamation point. She's strong, she's smart, 
and she makes as much noise as possible. And so I thought, what in the world? So I started flipping through it, and it's all about promoting feminism as a baby, showing naked babies and, and just, just the craziness of it and saying that it's empowering young women. And as a father of a young daughter now, Ed, that impacts me. But that is an agenda. That is somebody trying to promote something with their words. It's crazy. I'm sure you all have examples where you could see something and think, yep, that's exactly what I'm thinking. It's, it's so impactful just based on these little words. Morgan Blake, a writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he's actually a sports writer, wrote this. This is fascinating. Again, an unbeliever writing this. He says this, I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the winds. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name is Gossip. That is a fascinating statement and so true. And one theologian says this about our words. We may not have the ability or capacity to sin in any, in any way we want to all the time. We don't always have the ability to partake in every sin with our bodies. But we can say whatever we want, anytime we want. We always have the ability to sin with our mouths, right? So what I want to also do is look at what does the Bible teach? And, and as we're gearing up for what we're going to look at today, I, I want us to see what Scripture says specifically about the tongue. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Psalm 10. Psalm 10. And we're just going to do a quick survey of Scripture to see what God's Word says about the tongue. Psalm 10, David here pleading with the Lord, asking him why he stands far away in his time of trouble. And we pick up in verse 3, he says this, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, and all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs up at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet uh, adversity. Verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. So David here says about the wicked and what they say and how they say it is that they boast of the desires of their soul. So what they have to say is a direct reflection of what's on the inside, right? They boast of the desires of their soul. And the one greedy for gain, the one who can't get enough of everything, curses and renounces the Lord and says, there is no God. There is no God. And his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. 
and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. This is the tongue of the unbeliever. This is the tongue of the oppressor, the tongue of the wicked. Flip over to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Verses 1 through 4. Again, David speaking here. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips, and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Again, just a couple of things to take from here. David says that those who are ungodly utter lies to his neighbor. We are deceitful. We flatter with our lips, right? Flattering usually in, uh, involves getting something. I'm giving you, I'm flattering you, I'm saying this in order to gain something from it, right? But then again, the indictment here is in a double heart. They speak, it's a direct, direct um, indictment against the heart. It's not just that you say something and your words are bad. It's a direct reflection of what is in your heart. And he says here, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Again, the unbeliever, the, um, the liar here, boasts in such great things and say, With our tongue, we will prevail. We will do this. And again, questioning who is master over us, just like the previous one denying who God is, denying or renouncing the Lord, right? Flip over to Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. Again, what we're doing here is just seeing very briefly what God's word says about man's tongue. And this is by no means even scratching the surface of what we can look at. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1 says this, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. What a statement. Looking for difficulty, looking for strife, right? A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Again, we have to emphasize this. The mouth is a direct, direct reflection of our heart and our soul. What is inside of us? He goes on, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the deep parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is a safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. And he goes on. We'll stop there. So you see clearly here that, again, the warning is that a fool only is, in, is um, interested in expressing his opinion, expressing what he has to say. 
The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. What you have to say is important. What you have to say is impactful. And it can either quench thirst by giving sweet words of encouragement, right? Or it can drown somebody. It's a deep fountain. Fool's lips walk into a fight. We look for difficulty. We look for strife. We invite a beating with what we have to say. Flip over to Romans 3. Romans 3. passage that is familiar to most of you. Start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Again, just another illustration of what our tongues look like, what our mouths look like, their throat, where our throat as an unbeliever is an open grave. We use it to deceive people. It's as deadly as the venom of an asp. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And I don't think, as an aside, that it's, um, it's far off that he goes on in verse 15 where he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. This is just a simple outflow of what is coming out of their mouth and out of their heart. It's all a part of the same body. And in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Again, stirring up strife, looking and inviting a beating, right, as we just saw. You don't need to flip there, but just a couple more. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's funny because I saw a photo of that. The reason I pulled that one up is I was looking through different things and I saw a photo of a little baby and he had a plunger completely over his face with that caption there. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I thought it was funny, but it was a great illustration. A giant plunger of a little baby's face and he's holding it. Ephesians 4.29 says this. Let no corrupting talk Come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I love that verse because as we stand up and we make a commitment to one another, when we present a new member, we make that promise to one another. That instead of gossiping, instead of slandering one another, instead of when we see one another in sin, we don't come to one another and tear one another down or speak to somebody else about it. But instead, we let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths. We build one another up. We love one another that it may give grace to those who hear it. 
I think that it's pretty clear the point of that I'm trying to make here is that our mouths, what we have to say is so, so impactful. So the question is, right, then we have to ask this question, what is the responsibility of the church? If this is true, what is the responsibility of each one of us in here? As redeemed and regenerate members of God's church, of his body, which he purchased through his blood, how can we be equipped and prepared to combat our own propensity to sin with our mouths? We have to ask that question, right? Well, we're going to look at James today, James 3. And we're going to see that James wants us to live a mature and a holy life through how we speak, what we have to say. And we're going to see that James provides four ways in which the tongue affects the Christian. We're only going to get to the first one today, but he does say this. The tongue is capable of condemning. It's capable of controlling the whole body. It's capable of causing destruction. And it's capable of creating conflicts of interest. The tongue is capable of bringing judgment, causing destruction, exposing man's heart, and controlling the man controlling each one of us. So flip over to James 3, and that's where we're going to do our study this week and next week. We're only, like I said, going to get to the first point today, and we'll wrap it up next week. But flip over to James 3. I'm just going to read through our text real quick so that we get some understanding of the whole verse. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 of James 3. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring for, does a, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a uh, grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So just a little bit of background since we're jumping right into the middle of this, literally right into the middle of it. The author of this is James, the brother of Jesus, and I won't get into all the different reasons why that's so, but it's very clear to me at least, that this is the brother of Jesus, James. And I think it's good that, I think it makes sense that it's him, I should say rather, because think of who knew keeping control over the tongue better 
than Jesus Christ and what it meant, right? When he was blasphemed, what did he do? Spoke nothing, said nothing, right? Never did anything unwholesome or sinful come out of his mouth. He was perfect in every way. And so James had a front row seat at this. He was the brother of Jesus Christ and was able to see this exemplified perfectly. So I think it's great that James had a front row seat and can give us this wisdom, share this wisdom with us. So he's writing to dispersed Jews, Jewish Christians. James 1.1, he says to the 12 tribes, the dispersed 12 tribes. So we see that he's writing to, again, a, a Jewish Christian group of people. And it's possible that this group of people he's writing to were those who were scattered after the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8, or perhaps under the persecution of Herod Agrippa I in Acts 12. We're not absolutely certain of that, and I don't think anybody can say with 100% accuracy. But I think that that's a pretty good um, idea of when and who he was writing it to, somewhere right around between AD 43 and AD 49, given the, the uh, happening and what's going on here. Nevertheless, these are people outside of Palestine who have been dispersed because of persecution. And so what James is doing is he's writing a general epistle to these people on encouragement and holy living. And we can see that throughout, right? He's writing them, telling them, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Talks about godliness, warning them, the sin of partiality, testing your faith through trials and difficulties. He tells them about patience and suffering, warning to the rich, right? So there's not really one specific theme here, but he's kind of hitting the whole realm here. He's just trying to say, if you're going to live under persecution and you have the, or the uh, command to be holy, here's how you can do it in every area of your life. And I think he sums it up in James 1, 21 through 22, where he says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So we see James here is writing again a general epistle and he's encouraging these Jews, uh, Jewish Christians rather, who are under persecution. But that being said, throughout this, he does at least have a little bit of a thread. James refers to the tongue in a few different areas here. In 119, he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So here he's saying, be more inclined to listen to people rather than to state your opinion so readily or so flippantly. Verse 26 of the same chapter, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again, what we talked about earlier, it's a direct reflection of the heart if you don't bridle your tongue. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, So speak and, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So speak and not just speak, but act. These things go hand in hand. He's going to talk about this right after that. Faith without works is dead. So it's a direct reflection of what you believe. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He says, Do not speak evil against one another's brothers. Love one another. Scripture says that, right? They will 
Those who are outside of the church will know the church by the way that we love one another and how we show love for one another. The one who speaks against his brother, the one who says things flippantly, judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. We are not the judge. God is the judge. Chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so these last three in the first example that he talks about, they all have something to do with condemnation. Do not bring judgment on yourself with what you say. Do not bring condemnation on yourself with what you say. There is a direct result with what you say, and it is that you will be judged or condemned. And that's the first thing that we are going to see in this Chapter 3, verse 1. First off, the tongue is capable of condemning the teacher. He says, do not be quick to teach because of stricter judgment, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that, what, uh, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The first thing we need to notice about this is that it's an imperative command. In the Greek, it's imperative. He's saying, this is what you need to do. It's imperative. You hear me what I'm having to say. But he gives the imperative command in an emphatic negative where he says, not many of you should become teachers. It's the warning that not all of you should be. In other words, few of you should become teachers. Now, we need to understand what the term teacher here understands because there's quite a few different views on this. Of course, he can be talking about the official office of teacher, right? Uh, we see that in First Timothy. There are those who have been set up as teachers, uh, preachers, all these different uh, forms of uh, authority within the church. But I don't think that that's what he's talking about here. The term that he's using here is for instructor or teacher, but I think he's using it in the general sense of the word here, and here's why. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 14 real quick. 1 Corinthians 14. And we need to understand this because we need to understand, is he talking to just somebody who is in the pulpit preaching, or is he talking to every single one of us here who is a part of the body? Again, there's a few different views on this. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 34 says this. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or uh, most three, and in each turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is being made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets... For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, and, or as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So why would I take us here? What do you guys think is significant about that passage? What do you guys take from that passage? What do you see here? What is Paul telling the church in Corinth here? <clears throat> 
What do you think? Do we see a designated role of teacher here? Yeah. Who's allowed to stand up and teach or say anything? Men, sure, but is it only specific men or can any man stand up? I think it's pretty clear here that it says, it doesn't say specific people. It says, if any, but if there are any, let two or three, and if it's not something that they have to say, let somebody else say it. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that it was common practice in the early church that if somebody knew something and they had something to say, they could stand up and say it. They could share what they had to say. Again, we've got to remember that in the context of what's going on here, it was a different context. They met in homes. They met in small areas. It's not like what we do when we gather here where we have somebody specifically teaching, right? But what we're talking about here is orderly worship where just about anybody who had something to say could stand up and say it. And then if they, had an interpre- they needed an interpreter, somebody would, would interpret. So I think what we're seeing here is the general sense of the word here that what James is warning about is anybody standing up and saying anything flippantly. What I will say is this, though. We cannot neglect the official role either, though. We need to understand that this is just as much for somebody who is in the official role of teacher as well. I don't want to de-emphasize that. But my point in this is that this is for everybody. This is for anybody in here. And think about this. There is no greater influence in the world, and that is an understatement, than that of somebody who is speaking the truth of God's word in a public setting, trying to encourage somebody, trying to teach somebody, trying to build somebody up according to God's word. There is no greater influence that we have than when we speak God's word. We are held accountable for what we say and we are judged for what we say or do not say, right? And I think that's the warning here. Let few of you become teachers. Let few of you take this role on. Teaching was considered prominent in the early church. It certainly was. You can see that in Acts 13.1. You can see it in Ephesians 4.1. But interestingly, in Hebrews 5.12, he says this, right? Hebrews 5.12, I know where I'm at. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, speaking to this church, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So James is not saying neglect this role, neglect this job. He's saying you should be doing this to the Hebrews, but yet you need somebody else to teach you. So again, the teaching role was considered prominent, and James is not saying neglect this, but he's saying take heed to the warning of this. With a prominent role, conceit and desire for high esteem drive many to, see, to seek the role of a teacher, right? But many times it's with inadequate understanding or inadequate training or preparation. You see that that's the warning. What does Paul tell Timothy if he is a young convert? Do not allow him to be in this role of teacher because it will lead him to condemnation. It will lead him to pride. we do not understand the responsibility that is necessary, we ought not to cheat to teach. We ought not to do that. 
James is censoring, or not censoring, but censoring, showing disapproval for this type of loose-lipped approach. And just to kind of re-emphasize what I'm saying and to prove that this is most likely to uh, normal people within the church, not the office of teacher, what does he say there? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. It's a general call. It's a general statement, right? He's speaking to the brethren, and again, it supports this general term for office. He's not saying heretics are false believers. He's not calling out specific uh, heresy. He's just saying in a general sense, in this setting, brothers, make sure that you understand that if you have not been adequately given the right information, do not stand up and speak. Do not flippantly say these things. But he goes on and says, For, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the next question we have to ask is, what kind of judgment are we talking about here? Well, he says that it's a greater judgment. It's, a, it's an emphatic word here. It's a higher judgment, if you will. And I think what he's saying here is that you're held to a stricter accountability, not necessarily the severity of the judgment, speaking about the end times when we see Christ face to face, but we're held to a stricter accountability. Again, you can see this in 1 Timothy 3, or 1, 3 through 7, but if you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, and I think this will help emphasize what we're trying to see here. Matthew 12. Verses 33 through 37 say this. Familiar passage to you all, I'm sure. It says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the Evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So you will either be judged by your good words or your bad words, but either way we will be judged, and we will either be justified or condemned by what we say. And again, as we talked about, in this role of teacher, in this role as Christian, the responsibility is greater because we have the greatest news, the most important news that anybody will ever hear. And think about how much more we're held accountable, how much more we're held under a microscope compared to the rest of the world, right? People all over the world want to question what the Bible says that they want to test its validity, test what it has to say. No other book in the entire world is under as much scrutiny as the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures. And in the same way, because we believe what the Scriptures say, we hold to what the Scriptures say, we are held at a stricter accountability as well. Anybody can get up on TV and say whatever they want. But if a Christian gets up on TV and says what they want, they will be looked at differently. They will be held to a different accountability. I think that's clear. I think you can all agree with that. 
Again, the expression is not that teachers will be punished more severely than lay people, but that teachers will be more strictly examined because of the effect both good and bad that their speech will produce. Again, that's not to say that what I'm saying at this very moment will not be judged by God himself someday. And that's why whenever he's asked, John MacArthur, whenever they ask, who are you preparing your sermon for? He says, I prepare my sermon for God because I want to know that whatever I have to say is pleasing to him. Of course, he does it for the congregation. But his first, uh, of first importance to him is that when he preaches, he preaches before God. And I think that's the right attitude that we should have. Whatever we have to say, whether in the official role of teacher or as just a Christian who is sitting down to encourage an unbeliever or a brother, we will be held, for every, held accountable for every word that we say. And James uses the we to include himself, right? Thus not negating the office or role, but the pursuit to do so flippantly. Simply put, the warning is not rushing into this role. Be slow to speak, quick to hear, right? And he goes on in verse 2. He says, for, and this is the reason, we stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. I'll leave it with this. This is the main idea of the passage. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Here it is. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we can get control of our tongue, if we can get control over our mouth and what we say, we will have the ability to control the rest of our body. And that's what James wants us to see is that we do have the ability to control these things. So we'll keep going on this next week. We're going to see the, the next three portions of this, that not only does our tongue condemn us, but it also has three other abilities. It can control us. It can create confusion. It can cause destruction. We'll take a look at that next week. Thank you.